Father, we thank you for the opportunity to get to meet together in this way. We get to come together and, and sing your praises, come together and, and hear your word and worship as we listen, as we respond, and as we uh, meditate on your word. God, it's a gift that you give us. I pray you would help us to not take this gift for granted, but instead to savor it and enjoy it. And I pray, God, that as we gather today that you would meet with us. That you would send your spirit to point our our affections and our hearts and our minds to Jesus Christ. And that you would give us a sense of of the beauty and, and the glory and the grace that's found in him. God, that you would give us a tangible sense of, of how you want us to experience and live in those truths. God, would you, would you uh, not only challenge us, Father, with this text, but would you comfort us by this text? God, would you send your spirit to make us humble and contrite, make us people who tremble uh, under your word, that you would use it to lead us uh, into deeper relationship with you and into deeper joy as we hear your wisdom and your guidance for how you want us to live and flourish for our joy and for your glory. Now come and glorify yourself as we open up your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to first direct your attention um, to a very popular channel on TV, HGTV. I think many of you are probably familiar with that. Um, one of the big shows on, on that channel are uh, house renovations. Almost, I think I, I never watch it, but every time I've ever looked at it, it's some type of old, moldy, crusty house with a bad foundation and, and rotting walls that, that's in the process of being remade by, um, by a great team of uh, engineers or, or builders or whatever. And then kind of a, a family or a couple or, or whatever who is saying, hey, we want this house to turn into this. And so they sketch out with the, with the creative team and the builders. They sketch out, this is our plan for this house. We'd love it to look like this. We want it to be this. And they basically chart out this whole plan, how they're going to take this busted thing and turn it into this beautiful house that is kind of the, the star of the neighborhood. And that's kind of how every episode uh, starts. And then about halfway through the episode, uh, there's kind of this crisis where, where the family or the couple is like, wait a second, this, be- this busted thing is not, how in the world is this busted thing going to turn into this work of beauty? And then we all know, because we've seen the show enough times, right, that, that eventually in the 30 minutes that are allotted, it will turn into this, this beautiful thing eventually. Uh, but I think that the show is interesting because it has this, uh, this element, and this is part of the way I think it's so uh, appealing to us, it has this element in this story and this thing that we want to believe is true, that out of something that is busted and broken can emerge something beautiful that appeals to us. It appeals to us this this concept of you can take something that is totally devastated, dilapidated, old, moldy, a blight in the neighborhood, and with the right people, with the right energy, it can become something beautiful. Right? What if there's a way for that type of beauty to emerge out of the broken situations of our lives, right? What if in a world that God has created as good, but that has been infected by brokenness, what if in that world, what if there's a way that the broken situations of life 
can still have traces and seeds of beauty and redemption that come out of them. Wouldn't that be incredible? The beauty of James in this section is that James is going to show us something like that, but really something better. He's going to show us something better than just the possibility of, of beauty maybe coming out of the broken situations of life. He's going to show us the promise that beauty is going to come out of the broken situations of our lives. He's going to show us this in James 1, 2 through 8. And, and this is, I think, a text that is immediately and obviously applicable to all people everywhere. Because it hits at one of the fundamental realities of life in a world that is marred and, and broken uh, by sin in various ways and degrees. So, so hear this text as we jump in. James 1, 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach, reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James is posing this question. He's showing the solution for the issue of how do we deal with the trials of life, the broken circumstances and situations of life. Trials big, medium, and small. How do we deal with them? And James, as a context for this book we talked about last week, is written by the brother of Jesus. And what James is doing is he's giving one of the most practical pictures in all of the Bible of what it looks like to have a faith in Jesus Christ that is in action. A faith that actually has implications in every area of our lives. So James is very practical. And I think it says something that one of the first, the first thing he addresses topically in his letter is, what do you do when things go wrong? It's a great book that I love uh, by Chinua Achebe, a great African writer called Things Fall Apart. And what's so awesome about that book is that title is such an apt description for life, right? Things fall apart. It's just a great description for life. It's a great description for our clothes, for every electronic device you get, right? Things fall apart. Things are going to fall apart at some point in time. So this text is so relevant because it's God showing us how do we deal with the things in life when they start to go sideways, whether big, little, or small. And so what James is, is going to do, what we're going to see is, is really three things. We're going to see the reality of trials. We're just going to see the nature of them. We're going to see the new perspective that he's going to try to point us to. And then he's going to show us the tools that we have to deal with trials. The first thing, though, is, is verse 2. Look at that again. There's, a, there's something there that, that we don't want to miss. It's obvious, but it can be overlooked. On the reality of trials, notice what he says in, in 2. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Two things. Trials of various kinds. But even more important than that, he says when you meet them. Not if you meet them. So one of the realities of trials is that trials are either at your door, in your life, or they're walking down the street, coming towards us. That just things go sideways in life in a broken world. Right? Trials can be larger than life, things that absolutely overwhelm us and feel like they crush us. Or trials can be mundane, 
everyday things that just over time seem to suck the life out of our souls. In either case, trials are real, trials are painful, and trials just pile stress on top of us. Right? A trial, I think, in this context, I think uh, if you, you look at three, he, he begins to connect trial to the testing of your faith. I think James is primarily speaking about trials related to his audience's faith and persecution and things like that. But I think the application is, is beyond that as well. Trials for us can, can be something like losing your job and trying your hardest for months to get a new one. With no leads. Trials can be losing a loved one or a close friend. Trials can be a difficult, toxic workplace that every time you step foot into it just brings you down. Trials could be a hard stretch in a relationship. Trials could be the challenge of raising young kids. Trials could be the challenge of making ends meet. Right? Trials, they can look in all sorts of ways. But because trials are a part of life, James says in verse 2, when you meet them, not if you meet them, because they're a part of life, we must know how to deal with them rightly. Because they're, they're in our lives and it's part of life in this broken world until God renews all things. So how do we deal with them rightly? I think one of the ways that we deal with them wrongly is we try to escape them. Have you ever uh, heard the phrase retail therapy, right? <laughs> it's one way to escape trials. kind of fun, um, but it's one way to escape trials where it's like, well, everything feels sideways in my life, so let me spend a little paper and things are going to feel better, right? And I'm going to get some new gear or new things or, or, or whatever, and it's going to feel better. We might try to escape it. We might try to escape our trials by, by overwatching media. We might try to even escape our tra- trials literally by going on vacation, Right? None of these in and of themselves are bad, but when we use them as a way to cope with the trials of life, they're, they're going to let us down. But I think we have to ask ourselves, why do we have the tendency to want to escape from our trials? Big, little, small. I think one of the reasons we have that tendency is because if we think that nothing redemptive, no good can come out from a trial in some way, nothing, nothing good could possibly be an outcome of a trial then naturally we should run as far away and try to avoid them as much as we can. We will, we will not be able to endure a difficulty of a trial if deep down we believe that there's no redemptive goodness that could ever happen out of a difficult circumstance. Or if we think trials might possibly produce growth in us, but it's not guaranteed, we'll still seek to escape them. But with that framework, we can never say what James says in this verse. With that framework, we can never count a trial as joy. Because we can only see brokenness coming out of the brokenness that we're in. This is why James is strange. Strange like that music. James is strange. That was actually perfect. Thank you. The sermon has increased in its power and worth tenfold. No, you're okay. James is strange, right? Because he, he shows us that God has a very different view of trials and hardship than, than our modern culture does. Right? 
We're not taught, taught culturally to think that, that trials should be counted as joy, but, but, but I think deep down inside of us, we understand what James is saying. I think deep down inside of us, we realize James is actually hitting on a truth that we recognize and see. Not all the time, but we know deep down he's onto something, right? Intuitively, we know that beauty can come out of hard things, right? Deep, deep down, we know that good things can emerge from painful things. We think about training in athletics. You train to run a marathon, which sounds like the worst idea ever, to be frankly, uh, you know, frank and honest. That right? sounds horrible, right? But in the midst of the pain, there's, there's something good that emerges from it, the, the completion of a major goal. Right? Think about working diligently right, to get a certification uh, in, in nursing school or in graduate school or in your workforce where you really do just bust your rear end working hard. And it's painful and it's stressful and it's pressure and you feel like an imposter. But at the end, you reach your goal and you're shaped by it. And so we know intuitively that out of these type of difficult things, these sort of trials of various sizes, good can come. Think of even childbirth, right? Out of that type of pain, something good and beautiful can come. And we kind of know this intuitively, but yet we don't really apply this to our own personal trials. Right? How often when you're facing maybe the trial in the workplace or a trial or a hard relationship with somebody, how often do you stop and say, ah, let me count this as joy because of the good that it's producing in me? <laughs> right? we, we, we know that goodness can come out of these types of things, right? but it's not, it's not natural for us to, to begin to connect those dots. But, but let me ask you this. Imagine, imagine the type of person, imagine the type of person you would be if you could see the good in those little trials that come your way every single week. Imagine the type of person you'd be if everything that goes sideways in your day, those little things that just pile up stress upon us, those medium things that pile up weight and pressure upon us. Imagine the type of person you'd be if you were able to see, ah, this is painful, but I can sense that there's going to be some good that's going to come out of this. Right, this would be a completely new perspective on trials that's not shaped by our culture, but is shaped by God's view of our trials. And this is where James goes in, in 3 and 4. And what he does here is he shows us the unique beauty of Christianity, that we can not just think, oh, trials may produce something good in my character. They may refine me in some way. We can actually have a guarantee that through tri- trials, God is going to do something beautiful in us that we may not see immediately, but at some point will blossom and take root. Look at what he says in 3. He says, First, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials. Then three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's uh, endurance. And let endurance have its full effect. Let it, let it go all the way to the end. Think of the loading bar when you're downloading something, right? It doesn't help when you're downloading something to get frustrated and cancel it halfway through. You want to let that bar get to the end, right, so you can use your new thing. James is saying, let endurance in trial, let your understanding of trial complete like the loading bar so you can feel and have its full effect. He says that this is the full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So all the trials that you, you, you deal with, James is, is saying that what we deal with painfully, big, little, small, and trials, he's saying that there's an element tied to this, that, that it's, part, it's part of the, the brokenness of the world, that way that God has not designed things to be this way, but God is going to use those, those broken situations to bring these seeds of redemption and refine us, that trials are going to refine our faith and give us endurance in our walk with Jesus. This is an invitation to see everything that goes sideways in our lives in a slightly different light. Do you think about it like this? Trials, James is almost saying this to us, trials produce a more Christ-like and Christ-connected you. The trials produce endurance in your faith. They refine you in these unique and special ways that nobody else can experience but you in it. And it's going to produce a more Christ-like and Christ-connected you. And that's the reason why James says, in the midst of something that's difficult, there is a way to count it as joy because of the outcome that will be produced. I want to go back to the marathon because it's such a painful image for me. Um, imagine you know that at the end of running a marathon, there's $100,000 waiting for you at the finish line. One, this would, this would be the only way to get me to run a marathon. <laughs> and I would probably also not complete it, but I would collapse at like mile two and say, give me the money um, and cry out for mercy. Right? But imagine you're running a marathon and you know that at the end, there's $100,000 waiting for you at the finish line. And so at the beginning of the marathon, people are stretching and some people are nervous, but you're there and you seem to be nervous and stretching, but people start to notice, like you, you seem very happy. So people are wondering, oh, this person is, doesn't know what they're in for. They're like, I'm going to watch them. See, you know, see when the happiness kind of gives way to pain and, and uh, reality. And halfway through the marathon, you know, when you hit the, the just crushing point, I say that like I would know, but you hit that crushing point and you're crushed. But there's still like this, this sense and this smile on your face. Then you get to the end and everybody else is, is wiped out. And you are too, but then you're collecting your money. It makes sense to everybody watching. That's why. That's why this person was able to push through in the difficulty. They're in pain just as much as everybody else. But you're able to push through with this sense of a smile, this almost this smirk, almost this joy, almost this hopefulness, because you understood that there is an outcome. That's not a possibility, but there really is an outcome waiting for you at the end. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who, who dealt with depression and dealt with gout in his feet, this is before uh, there was much help for that. He also dealt with the guilt of, uh, of a church service where somebody walked in and, and yelled fire. And this was absolutely packed. People would come from all over to hear him preach. Someone walks into his, one of his packed church services, yells fire when there was no fire. Three people die by being trampled. And Spurgeon lives with guilt and depression and regret all of his life over this. He deals with depression. This feels like this. there's blood on his hands. He's dealing with incredible physical ailments. And he would, he would say this. He says, I've learned to kiss every wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Put this in, in modern English. Uh, he says, I've, essentially, I've learned to cherish every trial because it leads me to know and depend on God in a uniquely intimate way. 
How, how could you count any of those things as joy? How could you find any seed of redemption in things that painful? He's saying it's, it's the outcome. It is painful. I wish this weren't so. James isn't saying, hey, wish that this happens or wish that you get more of it. He's saying, hey, you wish it weren't so, right? Wish, I wish this wasn't the way it will be. And God will redeem all things and set all things right. But James is also saying in the midst of the brokenness, we can have joy when we begin to see the outcome through a new perspective on trials, that trials are not just something to, to escape, but there's something that we can endure in by God's grace and begin to count it joy because of the outcome that awaits us. It's another beautiful quote on this um, from another writer who, who puts it this way. When we are crushed like grapes, we cannot think of the wine we will become. So this idea of when, these, when life just feels to be, it seems like it's crashing in on us in every single way. It's so hard, right? It's so hard to have the perspective to say, ah, life is crushing me, but I'm going to be a beautiful wine 10 years down the road. That's not normal for any of us. That's not within our capacity. That's not natural. But when we start to see this new perspective on trials, we can smell the wine that we're becoming even as trials begin to weigh down on us, whether that's the big one or it's just this collection of tiny things that seem to go sideways. I want you to think about this text in these terms. Imagine yourself, you right now, imagine yourself three times as patient as you are. Imagine yourself three times as gracious as you are. Imagine yourself three times more generous than you are. Imagine yourself three times more Christ-like than you are. James is saying that trials, this is, so, this is why this text is so beautiful. It is so counterintuitive. James is saying, you want to get there? It will be trials that accelerate your growth in Jesus. James is saying that it's a trial that has the ability to be fertilizer on your growth in Jesus, to make your character more close to being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's why it pushes you to be Christ-like. God refines your character in this. And trials also put you, put you in a place where you have to depend on Jesus, to be more Christ-connected to Jesus in a unique way. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. Preaching something like this, I preached this this morning at a, at a, at a friend's church. Um, I'll say preaching something like this is really difficult for me to do because I, I think about my own life and say, well, what trials have I gone through? Who am I to speak about trials in this way? Now, what I was preaching this morning is people with a bunch of gray hair. So I'm like, okay, great. Here are people who have really, who have had 70 years of, of life in a broken world where things fall apart. Who am I to go and tell them about trials? Right? And thankfully, this is from God's word. So whatever is helpful, I speak not on my own wisdom or authority, but the authority of, of God's word insofar as it's faithful. But I also want us to, to understand that we may feel like we have gone through big trials. We may feel like I, I've never met a trial. This, this, this good news of this text is for us in either place. It's for us in either place. 
And trials uh, uh, have, are, are this way that God takes us on a journey to bring us to a place where his love is more than words on a page, but a power inside of our heart. So what the Spurgeon quote is about. That's what the great quote is about. And I recognize this for, for myself. And really what I think is really the main difficult thing that I've, that I've, that I've met in my life that, that pops to me when I think about this text. I think about the birth of my son, Julian, when he was first born. Born early, and he comes out, comes out just blue like all babies do, but he comes out blue and not breathing. And there's a code blue, and all these doctors rush into the room, and the nurses try to distract you, right? So we're like, wait, wait a second, who are these people? What's the code blue? You hear a code blue, you're like, oh no, it must be somebody else. Like, I really feel bad for them. And then you look up, it's like, actually, the blue light is in our room. Who's that for? (laughs) It's for us. And they whisk him off into the corner, and all these doctors huddle around him. And he's not breathing. He's not coughing. First thing you want to hear is crying. He's not crying. They're over in the corner. They're doing their thing. They're going to work. And we have no idea what's happening. They're able to get him breathing. But he stays in the hospital for 16 days at, at the NICU. And my first response is just, like, this is even a possibility? No one told us this in the childbirthing class, that this was a possibility. I was taught that you'd go to the class, this would happen, and then they'd be walking, and then I, I had, this was not a, this was nowhere on my frame of reference. So I was absolutely floored. It was like somebody came up to me and hit me over the head with a bat. How is this? What is this? And I remember we're going to the hospital every three hours for 16 days from our house, every three hours. And I remember God directing me towards First Peter parallel passage where he writes this though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ it's first Peter 1 and it was this text in the midst of that trial that took God's love from being words on a page in a moment to being a real power inside of my heart. That, began, that I began to, in a way that I couldn't have done on my own, I began to see a deeper connection that God was with me in the midst of that. And began to bring this text, began to, started to bring me to the place that I started to say, God, you're, you know, what will help my son, but whatever is happening here, whatever you're going to do, God, I, I, you're good. And it was this text and that experience that brought me a little bit further in Christ's connectedness and Christ's likeness in a place I couldn't have been able to get to on my own. This is why James is, is trying to show us that whether a trial is, is, is small, whether a trial feels life altering, whether a trial feels medium or we want to dismiss it, whatever it is, we can begin to count them as joy in the pain because of the outcome of Christ's likeness and Christ's connectedness that God is going to produce in us. Now, this is all um, important, but it still comes this question. How do you actually do this? Right? That, so far, what we've done is we've described a map, but we haven't told you how to use a map. So, so how do we actually use the map of this text to actually do this in the actual circumstances of our lives that hit us? And, and um, by God's goodness and wisdom, he, he lays that out for us. Look at verses 5 through 8. This is where we start to see the, the tools for, for trials. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So here are the two, tri- the two, excuse me, the two tools for trials. Tool one is wisdom. Tool two is faith. God is giving us practical insight on how is it that we can count a trial as joy. He's giving us two tools, wisdom and faith. Wisdom, wisdom is this. Wisdom is how do I deal with the trial? How do I deal with the trial? Faith is how do I see the trial and see that God is in it? Wisdom is how to deal with it. Faith is how to see God in it. And these are the two tools from God that we use to beat on our perspective of a trial until we start to see that within it, maybe deep down or maybe right on the surface, is joy. I think what's beautiful about this is God is showing off his kindness to us. If we deal with a trial or a circumstance that we can't for the life of us see, how could any good come out of this? How can there be any joy for me to count in this circumstance? How, how is that at all possible? God says this. He says, ask for my help. Ask for my help. Ask for my help to begin to see how I'm present with you in this. Ask for my help to begin to see, hey, here, here is as, as difficult and dark as this is. God, show me, show me that you're with me. Show me how to, how to cope with this. God, show me how to cope with loss. God, show me how to cope with this, this feeling of loneliness. God says, come to me so I can help guide you in the midst of this trial. So if you're dealing with a, a trial of, of relational conflict, wisdom is the God-centered discernment on how to deal with the trial, how to, how to talk to the person. Faith in that type of trial is believing that God is with you in the trial, that he's good despite the trial, and that he's going to use it to make you more Christ-like and Christ-connected. When we start to wield these tools in a trial, a trial goes from being complete stress to beginning to see glimmers of God in it with us. We're getting to taste the flavor of joy within us because we can start to say, wow, God is actually doing something in me through this circumstance. But notice, you probably caught this already. You guys are bright people. You probably caught this already. This is conditional, right? There's a piece of a conditional phrase on these tools for dealing with trials. And, and the condition is in 5 through 8. It says, when you ask for wisdom, you need to ask in what? In faith, right? It says, if you, if you don't ask in faith, you better not think you're, getting, you're not going to get an answer. It says, if you, if you don't ask in faith, you're a person who is unstable, double-minded in all of their ways. What, what, what does this mean? Here, here's, the, here's a paraphrase that I wrote to, to unpack this because it can feel strange or confusing on the surface. It's a paraphrase. When you ask for wisdom, ask with faith. Believe that God is good and that God can guide you in trials. The person who doubts God's goodness in trials is unstable, one foot planted on the solid ground of trusting God, the other foot on the sinking sand that says there is no good that can come from this trial. God is not in this with me. That unstable person will not receive help from God because they doubt the very thing God wants to give them. And they doubt this by doubting his good character. You think of double-minded as this divided loyalty almost. I think this is so important because this is us. This is me. Right? I'm going to guess this is you. 
right? When, when, we get a, when we get a trial, we sort of want to deal with it in God's way, but we also sort of want to deal with it in our way, right? Right, right, right. Think about this. We're, we're, we're like a person with one foot on the dock and one foot on the leaky rowboat, and we're wondering why we're falling over into the water all the time. Right? It, we're, just, we're just divided in how to deal with these hard things in big, little, or small of life. Right? Think about the trial of relational conflict. We might know that we ought to pursue reconciliation. We might know that we ought to forgive as Christ has forgiven, as hard as that may be. But there's also part of us that actually wants to do what? Feed the resentment, right? Feed the resentment another, another serving, right? Another, uh, there's a part of us that wants to stay bitter, Right? There's a part of us that wants to f- play out in our imagination. Ooh, this is what I would say to them if I had the chance. And I'd say it like this. Then they'd do that. Then they'd cry. Right? We do that, right? Right? Don't we do that? We do that with our spouses. We do that with our friends. We do that with our roommates. We do that with one another. We, we do that at work. Right? We do that. But we know, right, that the solid footing of God's wisdom on how to deal with relational conflict is so much better than our wisdom of bitterness, resentment, and anger. But we're divided. We kind of want to do this, but we also kind of really want to do that. And God is saying, if you have this motive in your heart, man, I want to get some resentment, and you're praying to me and asking how to have wisdom on this situation, you're not going to get it because you already know it, but you're denying it. So, so don't expect him to meet you in that trial when we have these motives that are all twisted. So the question for us is this. Is there a trial that we're facing where we're divided between seeking or acting on God's wisdom versus seeking or acting on our wisdom? Are you actively asking God for faith to see how he is with you in the trial that you're facing? Or are you believing the fact that you're on your own? God says wisdom and faith are the tools for counting trial joy. I think one of the reasons we can't count a trial joy on our own is because we'll rely on our own wisdom and we won't have the faith to see that God is good and he's with us in this hardship. But this is where a beautiful text like like Romans 5 comes in to, to help us and supplement what James is saying. Romans 5 says this, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You can hear the parallel flavors, right? Here in Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, and here in James 1. This text is beautiful because you take this next to James and you see this. You get this banner, this billboard, this display. God promises trials will produce good and true outcomes in us because of his love for us. That's the anchor. God's love is the hard evidence that trials, when endured with wisdom and faith, will produce something beautiful in us. And the ultimate example is Jesus Christ himself. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine living? This is is impossible for for us to imagine. It's impossible for me to imagine. Can you imagine living a life of complete integrity, 
and being able to say, looking at yourself in the mirror, I've lived a blameless life. Imagine being able to say that truthfully and honestly. Then imagine the next day being accused of a vile crime, being drugged into a biased court, being presented before an angry mob, and being thrown up for execution. Can you, can you imagine the internal strife and agony you would have beating within your chest saying, I'm innocent, right? Think of how you feel when you're falsely accused at work or by a spouse. You didn't do the dishes. I did the dishes, right? And this rage that rises up within you, the spouse or roommate or parent, right? Think of the times you're falsely accused and the righteous anger that rises up within you. But imagine for once in your life being 100% justified to have that righteous anger. That for once in your life, you're right to be angry because you truly are blameless and are being falsely charged and accused. This is the experience of Jesus. That 1 Peter 3 describes Jesus as the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. That Jesus describes himself in John 12 as he's getting ready to endure a false trial by, by the government and the Sanhedrin and these rulers to be drug away to a nighttime court, which uh, they're not supposed to do, and to be put in front of an angry mob and then to be crucified and be tried unjustly. Right before he encounters all of that in John 12, he says this, my soul is anguished. He understands. He understands like nobody else in the world what it's like to endure a trial, a hardship, or injustice. It says in John 12, my soul is anguished. And he goes on to say, well, what can I do? I've, I've come. Why would I escape? I've come for this purpose, that the Father might be glorified. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet book, puts it like this, describing the perspective of Jesus in the face of his trial and his crucifixion. It says this, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, by his trial, by his suffering, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant, Jesus, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Jesus had the faith and wisdom to see the outcome of his crucifixion and because of that, Hebrews 12, 2 says this, he's able to count the soul-crushing experience of the cross as joy. He's able to count the cross as joy because of the outcome that was awaiting him. And that outcome is your salvation. That outcome is your relationship with God the Father. That outcome is your adoption into God's eternal family. That outcome is guilt being removed from you as far as the east is from the west. That outcome is eternal life with God the Father, your creator, in the world restored and made right. That's the outcome that allows Jesus Christ, as he is crucified in our place for our sins, to count that moment as joy because of the outcome that would benefit you. Has anyone else endured anything remotely close to what Christ has done on your behalf? 
This is the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the perfect example of his brother's teaching here. But he's not only our model of how to deal with trials with wisdom and faith, but he's also our our hope, right? Please don't walk away from this saying, well, I can endure a trial because it'll make me a better person. Don't, 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 don't stop there. Say, say this, I can endure in trials because Jesus endured in the greatest trial for me. And he's with me in my trials to help me, to give me wisdom, to grow my faith, and to refine my character. Right? The, the gospel of Jesus, Jesus dying in our place for our sins to restore us to God, not by our works, not by our morality, not by our churchiness. Right? This gospel shows us that God uses the most unjust trial for the ultimate good. And now what he's doing is God is taking every other trial that comes your way and he's grabbing it by the neck and he's bending it until it does redemptive work in your life. That God is taking the trials of your life and body slamming them and bending them and orchestrating them and working within the brokenness and the evil and the death in this world. And he's bending all of those things and squeezing them until beauty comes out in our character. Until beauty and the the relationship and intimacy with God begins to flow into our lives. That's what God is doing with our trials. So what this means is that we need to see what God is inviting us into in James 1. That God is trying to get his kids a new perspective. So that instead of seeing a trial and feeling absolutely destroyed... We're still going to feel its weight, but we can at the bottom of that weight say there is a light of hope that's here. Jesus endured the greatest trial for me. He's with me in this one. James wants to give us a completely new perspective on trials. And it comes to us through faith in the gospel. Through Jesus, trials cannot beat you. They may crush us, but they will not beat us. God is doing something beautiful in us. I want you to think of, again, we started with this image. I want to end with this image. Think of the blighted house. I saw a blighted house on Somerville Ave. It's at the park. I looked up. I said, that house is ugly. That house is an eyesore on this whole street. It's a great street. That house is bringing that street down. Then I started looking. There's a guy on the corner, the corner of the house, and he's just got like, he looked really bored, but he's got something metal, and he's just like kind of scraping away at the old wood. Just kind of scraping on Saturday when it was hot. Just scraping. And it was this beautiful picture of like, this thing is ugly. Right? This thing is horrible. But like it's already undergoing the process of becoming something beautiful. Right? As I look at it and say, that thing is horrible. This dude in his mind is like, yeah, this is horrible too, but I'm going to keep scraping. And you know what? Something beautiful is going to be here at some point. It's just a matter of time. Right? Renovation work in the middle of it always looks horrible. Right? Trials, when we're going through, may feel absolutely crushing. But God is bringing beauty in us through the other side because of Christ enduring for us. He's our model and our resource.